Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manny. In today's episode, we're exploring the intersection of neuroscience and data science with our guests, Dr. Jack Van Horn, Dr. Tanya Evans, and Dr. Teague Henry. All three of our guests are experts in the field of neuroscience, and you'll hear more about their backgrounds and research at the beginning of the conversation. As you can probably guess, the brain is complicated. And so in order to study it, you have to find ways to navigate through this complexity. Of course, people have been charting paths through the brain for decades, making breakthroughs and discoveries that have changed the world. But in recent years, new methodologies in brain research have shifted the field. Advances in computing power, as well as techniques like machine learning, neural networks, and computer vision have allowed researchers to ask questions and make discoveries that weren't possible even 10 years ago. So you might say, given these new approaches to studying the world's most complicated organ, that brain science is data science. And our guests today make a compelling case for this view. So with that, here's Jack Van Horn, Tanya Evans, and T. Kenry. Good day, everyone. I'm Jack Van Horn from the University of Virginia, where I'm a professor in the uh, Department of Psychology, as well as in the School of Data Science. And I'm joined here by my colleagues, Tanya Evans and Teague Henry. Uh, Tanya, can you say a few words of introduction? Absolutely. Um, So I'm faculty here in the School of Education um, and Human Development at UVA. I also have courtesy appointments in psychology and neurology, and I am co-director of the Center for Healthy Brain Development. Teague? Hi, yeah, I am um, uh, faculty in the Department of Psychology and the Department of uh, Data Science. Tony, can you tell us a little bit about your research background and uh, some of the activities that you've undertaken? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my undergraduate training is actually in chemical engineering. Um, so I, I come to this from a fairly you know, quantitative perspective. Uh, I have interdisciplinary training in neuroscience as a PhD student, and then uh, postdoctoral training in developmental cognitive neuroscience. Um, ultimately, my research program seeks to characterize pediatric brain development and how it relates to school readiness skills. And I define that uh, quite broadly in the domains of reading, math, and social cognition. Um, and I bring to bear multiple neuroimaging methodologies to those questions. And I know a fun fact about you is that you spend a lot of time in Wales. <laughs> I do, I, well, I spend a lot of time in the United Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, my, um, my in-laws live in England five miles away from the Welsh border, okay. but they are not Welsh. But they are not Welsh. Yes. But um, nevertheless. And I, yeah, I, I spent uh, a little bit of time there as a graduate student as well. That's fantastic. Uh, T, tell us a little bit about your kind of upbringing in in science and... uh, uh, Yeah, of course. Um, So I did my my undergraduate degree in um, psychology. I originally went to my undergraduate uh, university uh, to do bioengineering, Um, but probably for good reason. They didn't let freshmen uh, engage in research in bioengineering labs. Um, With what I know now, I think that was probably a good idea. Um, But in psychology, they did. So I I went over to psychology um, and got a degree there. Um, And then I went to graduate school um, for uh, quantitative psychology, which is a strange subfield that is basically statistics for psychologists. Uh, did postdoc um, in clinical neuroscience and then um, developmental psychopathology more generally. Um, and now I'm here. Uh, and my work really revolves around kind of two features. I've got one side of my research, which is neuroimaging. And I'm interested in um, how do we build better software and tools for neuroimagers to use just very generally from a, from almost a user design um, standpoint, because our, our software is, is unfortunately 
it works, but it's not well designed from a user standpoint. Um, and the uh, I'm also interested in, in network neuroscience, understanding connectivity in the brain, multiple modalities in the brain, and building new um, uh, statistical tools for that. The other side of my research that is less brain related, but but very intermingled is um, I'm very interested in behavioral dynamics and modeling behavior, and especially in terms of psychopathology. Um, I'm interested in um, just-in-time interventions for psychopathology based on behavioral data um, and have developed, and I'm actively working on developing some new methods for that. Fantastic. And I guess I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I. Uh, earned my uh, bachelor's degree in, in psychology um, and then immediately went into a PhD program in England, as it turns out, in, in London, and uh, then uh, took a, a postdoctoral fellowship uh, working at the National Institutes of Health. And while I was there, I didn't have enough to do, so I went and did a master's degree in uh, electrical and computer engineering. Um, and so I was doing that at night while I was doing my postdoctoral research during the day, and then had opportunities to join the faculty at Dartmouth College. And I went over to the West Coast for a while and was at UCLA and USC before I came here to, to UVA. And um, a lot of my work is largely dealing with some of these large-scale data sets from neuroimaging. Again, it's just I've seen enormous growth in the size and the scale and the number of subjects that we involve in these types of studies. And this has involved a lot of magnetic resonance imaging, um, positron emission tomography. Those are two different modalities looking at different elements of kind of brain structure and function, um, but also uh, in more recent years, looking a lot at brain connectivity using mm -hmm. very diffusion-weighted yep. uh, imaging modalities, looking at networks, um, mapping out pathways in the brain, looking at functional correlates uh, of these networks with uh, behavioral outcomes. I've done this in traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease, autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, and Parkinson's disease, and probably a number of other disorders which I've forgotten about but uh, it is a it's been fascinating absolutely fascinating that field changes so fast mm -hmm. um, that if you turn your head for a moment and look back uh, you will have missed a lot um, because there is just so much excitement and enthusiasm and I think as we were talking about um, you know things like team science, uh, it's very exciting because you really get to work with a lot of different levels of expertise. It's not like we're all in the same kind of scientific bucket and we're all talking to each other in an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. You get so many perspectives from clinical medicine to neurology to radiology mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. physics to you know, computer science, engineering, and, and, and psychology. It's really is an exciting area to be in. And I think data science is really a brain science it as is. well. And so that in so much as, you know, uh, data science uh, it can play a role, I think it's absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad we have a chance to get together today because this comes uh, after a lot of excitement around here at UVA about the neuroscience grand challenges, which are even now, there's all manner of initiatives going on, on around grounds. Uh, at the same time as we're on the eve of Brain Awareness Week, which is a national effort to make sure that people are aware of brain uh, diseases and development and what it means to have a healthy brain and all that uh, that really are, a lot of our research impacts. And I wanted to 
have a conversation with the both of you about the brain as a data science and the amounts of data that we collect on it. A lot of people don't really appreciate the fact that a lot of the work that we do is really data rich. And Tanya, I know that uh, from your experiences, you're collecting data across multiple modalities and just how much has that grown in your career and what have you seen and like, you know, why is this, why is this important for people to know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of complexity of data, uh, you know, I currently collect structural imaging data, functional imaging data, um, now collecting EEG data as well across both individual participants and dyads. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, my goal is to connect brain to behavior to make kind of meaningful contributions about what we're actually looking at. And even, you know, the behavioral data is rich as well. And so making connections across those, it's just, you know, myriads of, of matrices that need to be analyzed in, in some complex yeah. fashion. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and Teague, you know one or two things about matrices. Mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> the these data are from multiple different spatial and temporal mm -hmm. scales mm -hmm. and integrating them all and looking at relationships amongst different brain mm -hmm. regions really ends up being a very complicated process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm always just struck by the complexity of a single modality for a brain image because not only do you have possibly the brain moving across time, but then if you think about the brain as a three-dimensional array, then you've got hundreds of thousands of data points mm -hmm. for every individual from one modality multiplied across multiple modalities. That's a lot of data. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, when I was a newly minted postdoctoral fellow uh, for the laboratory that I was in, I was asked to go and buy the hard disk that we were going to use to <laughs> store all of our data. And so I went out with, I can't remember how much money they allowed me to have, but I went out and about the biggest freestanding hard disk that you could get at mm -hmm. that time. And it was four gigabytes, wow. which was like infinity in at 1993, mm -hmm. right? And now four gigabytes you could eat for breakfast. Yep. It's, oh, yeah. it's really not that big of a data set. And the types of data that we're collecting today in about an hour's worth of you know EEG or right. MRI, uh, in the future, that will be considered cute, just like four gigabytes is now. I can't imagine. <laughs> so uh, I, I no doubt. And as we are linking these different data types together with full genome sequencing, with mm -hmm. some of that deep phenotyping you were yep. talking about, yep. these things are these are a, a computational challenge and really require data science methods oh, yeah. and yeah. thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's working with neuroimaging data or, or just any sort of brain data really kind of puts a almost a physical quality to the size of the data, where it, it takes effort to move it from one computational platform to another. You get a sense of the bandwidths needed, of the, the processing capacity needed. It becomes it's, a mass. It right? becomes a mass, yeah, a huge, it just, it, it has a physicality to it. Uh, at least that's how I, I think of it when I'm working with large scale neuroimaging data. I remember, uh, you know, earlier in my career, a lot of the data that people would get would be, you know, if you think about like bench work, which is still true, is, you know, you're basically doing gels or right. you're doing something and you'd create a mylar thing. Recording would, in a lab notebook. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of the data is just born digitally. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you take your sample, you put it in a machine, the machine spends 
does whatever it does and spits you out a data file that is then the subject of your analysis for the next <laughs> two years. Um, this has been true in pretty much any modality and certainly for these human-centered modalities, it's mm -hmm. definitely true. What are some of the areas where you've really seen this happen? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's coding at every level. I mean, we, for instance, we watch videos of participants interacting and we code that behaviorally. Um, we also uh, utilize some methodology. Um, we collaborate with Stephen Boker and, mm -hmm. and do motion energy analysis to quantify pixelation and movement from that behavioral perspective. Um, uh, phenotypic data, neuropsychiatric measures, all of them with multiple subtests and to be able to you know parse out and and say you know which bit of this behavior is driving these changes in brain development it gets very complex very quickly mm -hmm. how do you make inferences on this Teague uh, how, how do you make that linkage between a change in this brain signal mm -hmm. is related to this change in cognitive performance for example mm. Well, of course, with causal inference being a difficult thing, <laughs> it's difficult to draw direct relations between those. But it, it's generally we just have to be very careful about using the data and thinking about it. And and then once you once you understand what you're looking at when it comes to neuroimaging data, and you have adjusted for the features of neuroimaging data, most of the time it can be reduced down to a classical model, right? Like the dominant method in in um, a lot of uh, functional neuroimaging work is something called the general linear model, right, the GLM. And all that is is it's just repeated multivariate linear regression over and over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times, which is complicated, but it's not like neural networks or deep learning, what have you. Um, but the, the magic comes into then adjusting everything that you're doing for the fact that there's spatial relations in the brain, for the fact that you've got slight differences in the brain across people. That doesn't even get into the processing pipelines that are needed because the, the remarkable things about brains is that they do look similar, but they're different enough to make computers not be able to equate them very well. Mm -hmm. So an entire field of data processing is registering these images together. What's the role of the, the computing? Um, mm. These are not the kinds of analyses you can do on your laptop. These no. require mm. something special, mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. right? Well, you could do them on your laptop. You wouldn't want to do this on your laptop <laughs> because that's going to probably, for the most part, kind of keep your laptop running very, very hot for days, right? Um, it, it, it's just a matter of the sheer amount of data. Can your laptop hold hundreds of gigabytes of information in memory? And then throwing these giant matrices around, it, it's, again, it's not computationally complex, but there's a lot of it, a lot to do with it. Um, so it, it's really a matter of, of scale. And I've worked with neuroimaging data on my personal computers, and I've deployed it to very, very large clusters. And it's it's there's nothing inherent to the analyses that requires a very, very powerful machine. You just don't want to have to wait for months for things to be done. Yeah, you yeah. need to be able to, to do it at scale. Yeah, um, I'd like to just throw in that, uh, you know, 
one can take data-driven approaches, but it also is incredibly important to be theoretically grounded mm -hmm. oh, and yes. conduct mm -hmm. hypothesis-driven research. Mm -hmm. You know, all of this data is meaningless unless we can make sense of it and really approaching our experiments with hypotheses that then we're able to rigorously test mm -hmm. utilizing these methods and these data sets. There was always the, I don't know, there was, for a while, there was this sort of banal attitude that we just collect enough data. We'll, we won't have to like, test hypotheses anymore because we'll just know everything. It's just a matter of ferreting it out of mm -hmm. all the data. Right. And I've never subscribed to that view. It's no, no. it's a helpful for us to generate new hypotheses, which can then go and be specifically tested absolutely. with new data collection. Mm -hmm. But as a replacement for hypothesis-driven research, absolutely not. No, you know, no. we'd be no. foolish to think so. Well, and just the very nature of brain data makes data-driven approaches to like hypothesis building almost dangerous because there's exactly. so much signal and so many different ways of slicing this data up that if you're going data driven you're going to find something right and because of how you know modeling works and how everything how basically our psychology influences how we think of models you're probably going to find something that you're looking for when it comes to the data but it might not actually be the best way of of analyzing it so yeah i'm a, i'm a big advocate for hypothesis driven testing for this type of data i think there is a place mm -hmm. for data driven yeah. um, approaches um, but it, you have to bring in prior theory you have to bring in knowledge about the data type yeah. tanya you do a lot of your work in developmental neuroscience and so you're yeah. looking at patterns of how brain form function and connectivity are are changing over the early lifespan from yes. birth to young adulthood. Yes. Um, what are some of the kind of specific breakthroughs you might have seen or be aware of in your own work or in the work of others that really these types of data have given rise to? Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, looking at developmental data, uh, there are kind of, if you want to break it down quite simplistically, if you want to study something changing over time, you can have a cross-sectional data set or a longitudinal data set. You know, a cross-sectional data set is the quickest way to collect uh, developmental data, um, but we really can't understand individual differences if we utilize that method. And so really leaning into these longitudinal data sets, which take time to collect um, and we, we deal with attrition, so we're not seeing the same subjects that are, are staying in the sample and really leaning into what's been found behaviorally, but trying to replicate that with more neuroimaging mm -hmm. types of methodologies. And um, so the implementation of longitudinal models has come into play. And I think that an area that has been incredibly exciting is is looking at a way in which we can use brain imaging data to predict either trajectories mm -hmm. or outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So take, you know, a resting state scan even at, at birth or a structural scan even at birth and be able to say, you know, with this image we're able to reliably predict what the trajectory of growth in one particular skill might be for this individual. Mm -hmm. I think that's been a pretty exciting. That's super exciting. Teague, have you have any examples you can think of that uh, really, I don't know, were born out of 
these large-scale data collection efforts? And oh, yeah. No, I use these sort of really large-scale data um, collection uh, efforts as sources of data for methodological work, right? So I've used, uh, there's a huge data set that's public use. It's called the ABCD Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development. Mm -hmm. um, beautiful data set, uh, 10,000 children, I think starting at age, what, nine, ten, ten? Nine or ten, yeah, yeah. nine or ten. And they're going to follow them up at, at over ten years, five mm -hmm. different scan occasions. I think they're in their second follow-up scan now, right? Um, and there's 6,600 and I think 66 um, scans available in the resting state um, uh, that are all viable. Um, it's a it's a beautiful data set for just pulling down and when you're developing a method, running something on it uh, because you really want that huge sample size to be able to play around with. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the things which I've seen over a career in doing this is that just the size of the number of subjects mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the same time as improvements in the technology to be able to get more uh, more data per unit of space per unit mm -hmm. of time mm -hmm. also just the size of the samples yeah. when we I started doing this stuff ages ago the sample sizes were you know 10 subjects mm -hmm. you know the the sample size was relatively small right. now you have these enormous resources of you know all you know what is it, 65 500 subjects mm -hmm, in ABC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have the uh, eight, uh, the Human Connectome Project yes. data set, which is you know, many uh, thousands mm -hmm. of subjects. Uh, the UK Biobank is yeah. a ridiculous yeah. uh, mm -hmm. resource. Hundreds of thousands of individuals and all contributing MRI scanning, all contributing uh, neuropsych, mm -hmm. uh, demographic information, mm -hmm, regionally mm -hmm, specific mm -hmm. stuff, you know, in this case throughout throughout England. Um, and there's a number of other efforts going on in the U.S. currently, as well as that are kind of being under development that are going to be amazing resources. Just the scale of that has really changed in it the has. last 10 to 15 years. But yeah. the collaborative effort required to undertake those studies is just remarkable. No single institution, no single investigator could undertake them. It's, it's a team science effort. It really requires people with in medicine, um, in biology, neurobiology, psychology, education, statistics, quantitative psychology, um, and data science uh, writ large to be able to do these things at all. Right. Uh, it does take a village yeah. Yeah. for those yeah. types of studies. To coordinate the data collection, have it be identical across sites, oh, yeah. Yeah. maintain the data, store the data, mm -hmm. provide access to others that are interested in using yeah. it throughout the community. Absolutely. And, and it provides a really nice blueprint for um, more targeted data collection efforts because mm -hmm. uh, one of the difficulties with uh, clinical neuroimaging is collecting certain types of data. I've worked with um, a, a data set on medication-naive children with ADHD. Not only are those children very rare, because most children who are diagnosed with ADHD go on medication, but also they move a lot in the scanner, which means they're very hard to collect data from. So ultimately, we had about 18 subjects worth of data for this randomized controlled trial. And it just got me thinking, like, you know, if there were multiple sites that had shared protocols or standardized protocol for right. tasks, that we could do a bunch of equating across sites. And then I know that there are multiple teams of investigators who are interested in these questions, sharing the study design, sharing the protocol, and getting the sample size we need to do really good inference, that is a consortium effort. That's a that's a big collaborative effort. Do you think that UVA as an example institution could help to lead efforts like this? 
I believe it can. Um, I've worked for a number of academic institutions, and I, I can honestly say that UVA is really investing resources and taking strides to you know, break down um, administrative barriers and really provide resources to incentivize collaborative work. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be wonderful to see UVA with, with this investment in the neuroscience grand challenges, the recent hirings that have happened here uh, with our faculty, is to be able to position ourselves to be leaders in some of this large-scale mm-hmm. neuroscience-related work. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be just so exciting and be uh, so many opportunities for scholarship and opportunities for students to get engaged. Yeah. Um, it'd be super exciting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there um, uh, any specific stuff that is kind of necessary to undertake those types of things computationally or administratively? Or, you know, what what do we have and what might we be missing? Yeah, I, I mean, just the infrastructure, uh, the human resources required to administratively handle the kind of funding that goes into mm-hmm. those type of resources um, and having that be centralized, having that be able to be a process that can easily occur across schools and across departments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's super important is to ma- making sure that things aren't so siloed that right. you can't talk to mm-hmm. other people who are at your same institution, but because of the structure, it makes it really difficult yeah. to communicate uh, across different schools and different departments. Yeah. I think having the Brain Institute as a, as a centralized institute that is kind of connecting this community together is a fantastic resource. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that having computational resources that could support our work are important. Yeah, I think that's going to end up being very important. There's much is made of, you know, computing in the cloud, right? Right. It's like as if this is just this easy solution. We'll all just move to the cloud and all Mm -hmm. things will be wonderful. I I still believe there is a very fundamental role for on-premises high-performance computing at our institution. Absolutely. Uh, for well, a number of reasons. You want to know where your data are being processed mm-hmm. because you want to know it's uniformly done on a common platform. Mm-hmm. You want to know uh, that it's a resource that you can make uh, uh, statements about when you're applying for grants or you're writing up your methods section. If you say you just, we did it in the cloud, mm-hmm. it's sort of, you know, that what did you do in the cloud? And yeah. that's yeah. a little different statement than saying we actually have hardware purposefully deployed mm-hmm. to handle these kind of data types. Um, and I, so I think that's really important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And for an institution to kind of take the lead with something like that, you need kind of proof of concept that that institution is going to be able to handle all, all of these moving pieces in order to garner trust from funding agencies as well mm-hmm. as collaborative uh, investigators across other schools. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um, Teague, with all this data and the kind of computational approaches which are you know, under development here and mm-hmm. elsewhere, where's neuroscience going to be in 10 yeah. years, oh, 20 years? That's a great question. What are we going to be doing? Oh, I get to, I get to make some, uh, some prophecies <laughs> about <laughs> neuroimaging. You get to Fantastic. make a prediction, Dr. Henry. Uh, yeah, I think, let me think. I, I, I can put together some safe predictions and maybe some more risky predictions. I think that multiple modalities of imaging. What I mean by that is a functional, structural, white matter tractography, um, but multiple different types of scanners, PET, MRI, um, uh, MCG, or uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of different types. That sort of multimodality study is going to become 
the most important way of doing this. I also think that uh, increasingly people are going to be interested in neuroimaging combined with um, intensive longitudinal behavioral data. Absolutely. Um, just because we can get good pictures of the brain mm -hmm. and we need to understand the dynamics of the behavior. And so we're going to get better data on the dynamics of the behavior. So I, I think that a lot of the areas around brain science is going to grow and connect with brain science. Um, I do think that we are going to move, I think, I, I hope, and this is my more risky prediction, I hope that we're going to move as a field more towards a, a standardization. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is, Every, every field in within neuroimaging seems to have its own language, its own set of systems that they're interested in. I'll give you an example. I do network neuroscience. I'm familiar with talking about different networks of the brain. But if you go to somebody who's interested in circuits of the brain, then they might be talking about, you know, the cortical thalamic cortical loop structure, which is very much related to some of the networks that I'm interested in. It's the same tissue, right? So I hope that as a scientific community, we're going to be able to have a more standardized approach for talking about the brain within the next 10 years as, as data continues to give Certainly us Certainly some kind of a thesaurus. Yes, that, you some know, translation. This, yes. It also means the, the following. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, uh, Tanya and I are, were having, we're working on kind of this project together. And as we were developing the project, I was thinking about what are some of the computational kind mm. of ideas that one wants to put into place over this next 10 years or so. And it, this sort of speaks to the notion of bringing in theory with the computation, because you can kind of do machine learning now and you pour your data into the machine mm -hmm, and it goes mm -hmm. and does something and says, Eureka, but I don't know what it did. Yeah. And I want to be able to take advantage of that. On the other hand, I do want there to be some sort of theoretical underpinning. And the idea I came up with was like a spectrum from Maxwell's equations to machine learning. Mm -hmm. so Maxwell's equations are very fundamental to how we understand mm -hmm. electromagnetic energy mm -hmm. and transmission of information. It's one of the reasons why our phones work <laughs> um, and a number of other things. Yeah. At the same time, there's that spectrum of everywhere in between to where we're just letting the machines kind of tell us things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are, is there any place in that spectrum where we should put particular emphasis? Um, well, is there anything in network neuroscience that we want to uh, you know, kind yeah, of yeah, leverage I, in there? I, I would say that I, I don't think that it's necessarily a you know single line spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think that there are ways of making machine learning approaches, um, kind of these black box approaches, uh, explainable, right? There's right. the entire uh, field of explainable AI, and I think that's going to be increasingly important uh, to this because, yeah, we, we and I see people apply deep learning models to brain data all the time. And it, to be a little flippant, to be a little straw manny, sometimes I kind of think that all those projects can be described as we have discovered that the brain is related to behavior. <laughs> Which, okay, yeah. I mean, the Greeks didn't really realize that back in the old days, but I think we have a pretty good, pretty good handle on that. So I would like to see more methods for interrogating these black box methods, right? If you, you know, build these deep learning methods, you show, hey, they predict well. What in the brain predicts this well? Mm -hmm. What are you, where is the data going in these black boxes? And that's a question that goes outside of, of neuroscience. It's, it's, a, it's a methodological data science question. Yeah, and I think this 
is super important when you're talking about these machine learning methodologies, which are really good at classifying things. Yeah. And from a clinical point of view, or you're looking at autism relative to, you know, typically developing right. children, or you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a, a range of different individual differences, individual differences yeah. a range of different clinical disorders. What do those things mean? And what's the thing that is telling you the difference between mm -hmm. someone who has ADHD versus somebody who has right. autism spectrum disorder. Right. Tanya, what things would you hope that you'd see out of something like that? Yeah, um, I think the most meaningful discoveries that would come about would be really if we could identify the periods of time during development which are best to intervene mm. and what those interventions should look like in order to optimize outcome and Absolutely. developmental trajectories. Yeah, I, this is, I think your comment right there really touch, touches back on the notion of all this is a team science, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Is we can do a lot of computation and say, oh, look, this classifier does something. Mm -hmm. But if to somebody who's in education, for example, well, what does that mean? How right. do I use that? Mm -hmm. And it really means we need to have more conversations, you know, like this one <laughs> to mm -hmm. bring people together to talk about these yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, it's about translating the science in a mm -hmm. meaningful way to, you know, the, the consumers that, you know, in this case, it's, you know, parents or, or children with developmental disabilities uh, in, yeah. in some of this work. Um, and I, I really think that the investigators so the scientists that are going to succeed from now and, and 10 years from now mm. are going to be the ones that are most fluent in team science, mm. the ones that can sit in the middle and talk to all of the disciplines and be able to translate between those. Mm. It's, it's really interesting because I think that a lot of, at least in, in probably in speaking for you guys too, mm. in our careers, we're almost sort of socialize, specialize, specialize, mm -hmm. specialize, and mm -hmm. become mm -hmm. this one thing. And I've always resisted that because I've always worried that I would look up one day and no one cares about mm -hmm. what it is mm -hmm. I'm studying. And there's so much more interesting stuff at the intersections right. of these different fields. And it mm -hmm. really does ne necessitate a team science. Kind yeah. Of and that's, I mean, that, that's exactly why I love being in data science and having the, the background in methodological development that I do, because I, I'm very interested in developmental neuroscience, I'm very interested in clinical neuroscience, but I don't run my own studies in that. Instead, I get to collaborate with people. I get yep. to play with all sorts of different data and I, I can really learn a lot about a different, a bunch of different fields. And that's made me, I, I, I hope it's made me a better communicator to the consumers of what I'm researching, mm -hmm. which are the scientists who are using mm -hmm. the methods that I'm developing. Um, I find it, it's, uh, it's something that you have to learn how to be able to say, I have developed this new approach for analyzing your data, and here is how you can use it. Slash, you also always ask uh, your collaborators, how, what are your needs? What do you need from a method here? Yeah, yeah. that's super important. It's a two-way street. It is, oh, very I've, much so. I've very seen it so. where, you know, a group of developers is told, you know, or software developers, you know, we need this. And they mm -hmm. rush out mm -hmm. and they develop something and they show it back to the, mm -hmm. you know, people who ask for it. And they go, yeah, we would never use yep. that. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's no. not no. what we wanted. Happens happens all the time. It really does need yeah. to be an interactive uh, process. I'm curious about, you know, we're talking about the future here a little bit um, in the next 10 years or 15 years. Do you think that our national funding agencies, do you think that they get that, that this this team science approach that is really the way we're going to move 
these data-rich approaches forward and that they understand that? I think they're getting there. Yeah. Um, I think there's certainly some movement. Yeah. Uh, it, it could get better. Um, some limitations that I see are the mere length of most funding opportunities yeah. uh, cap a, at five years. Yeah. And so to have a, a large scale collaborative project begin and end in that time frame doesn't always yeah. seem feasible. Yeah. Do you think that um, uh, private foundations might be a better, you know, maybe a little more nimble yeah. and a little more forward thinking? I think so. I think that's a, a great space to think about this work to fit into. Yeah. And philanthropy, mm -hmm. and, you know, private who, donors. Yep. Yeah. Certainly they can help pay for, uh, really be helpful in paying for the infrastructure and the kind of the brick and mortar elements Absolutely. of it. Oh, yeah. Whereas the NIH yeah. can, and other agencies can help pay for the, you know, the actual hypothesis driven right. research yeah, or right. whatever yeah. that is going to utilize uh, those resources. And, and I feel like so much of the issue is in infrastructure, is in actually getting the data, handling mm -hmm. the data, running the data through, um, and to, to do work to streamline that is, is not only going to result in better science, but much, much faster science. Um, even by today's standards. I think being able to, like, for example, developing workflow technologies yep. mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. allow you to take the data in its rawest form and really automatize the process of getting it prepared. There's mm -hmm. various mm -hmm. cleaning things you have to do just to kind of get it into shape so you can do those analyses. But if you can streamline that process, we can like get to answers um, yeah. and potential much cures better. for things so much faster. Yeah, so much faster. But you got to have it in place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, last neuroimaging study that I was actively doing all the processing for, it took me six months to do all the processing because not because I didn't know what to do with right. the processing. Yeah. I had my own pipeline ready to go. Yeah. It was just the the infrastructure that I was on. Mm -hmm. There were issues in in the specific formats of the data, in just having things run, um, and if there was a cleaner setup, a more standardized setup. And this is getting back to what I said earlier about standards yeah. in terms of of uh, the data in neuroimaging and neuroscience, I, I think that that would be a major, major uh, benefit to researchers all over the place. So much of the the brain is visually compelling. It, uh, it makes for like, it's very photogenic, mm -hmm. the brain. <laughs> Who knew? Mm -hmm. um, and well, which really kind of underscores the a role of, of data visualization and the presentation of results and to, you know, with we're you know brain imagers. We're neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. We uh, th these photos convey information. Mm -hmm. They convey the subject under study. Mm -hmm. They convey the results that we've obtained through our experiments. And I, I know that um, certainly uh, 3D graphical representations of these mm -hmm. things that are mm -hmm. interactive are particularly compelling. I, I really enjoy that. I know Teagues, you've played around with this a little bit. Um, you know, and to be able to run some very complicated algorithms, turn them into something that we can hand to Tanya and mm -hmm. say, oh, look, here is a result based on your data. And hopefully it allows you to see it in a right. abstracted, but possibly information rich and meaningful way is something that we don't really, I don't know if we've, we're, we're, it's not that we don't put an emphasis on it. It's just that very often that's kind of the a result we need to get to, right. but it's something that's so, so important. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the last thing that we think about, right? Yeah, it's we do it's all like this stuff, afterthought. magic happens, yep. and then we're, oh, wow, we How actually we have to, to present this now. So uh, it, it is kind of interesting to be able to play with, for example, some of the, the methodologies that are used in the film industry, for mm. example, to create 
CGI kinds of things. I know it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's all kind of, uh, at least from a Hollywood point of view, kind of fake. <laughs> but on the other hand, it is a way to rep- render and represent your data in a way that uh, is very compelling. Mm-hmm. And you can mm-hmm. tell a very interesting story with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Tanya, are there any things it, from a kind of clinical point of view over this next decade or so that you would like to see um, kind of data science play an important role in? Um, I, I mean, I, I began speaking to it earlier, but I can kind of elaborate a bit more in terms of really defining what interventions should look like and yeah. when they should happen. Yeah. And so if we could have again, getting to visualization, if we could visualize developmental brain trajectories in, you know, a typically developing child versus, you know, the heterogeneous scale of development going into clinical populations and really isolate um, areas of susceptibility uh, in time, areas of susceptibility in uh, brain networks that ultimately will support certain skills that aren't quite set up at the right time and, yeah. and can we intervene and, and make that happen in a, in a better way so it, they don't manifest with the actual disorder. Um, I think that integrating with the education system, mm-hmm. particularly um, public education where there is a lot of data mm-hmm. on uh, what kids look like in preschool and uh, in early school years and if we can get to them early and make sure that they're ready for the classroom, um, both from the, you know, reading, math, social cognition, all of these facets. Um, and there's a, it must be an important role for um, health disparities. Here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, you know, we have, we have a fantastic school of medicine and a school of education here. And if we can kind of not miss out on these like age two to age five, you know, what mm. yeah. kind of just you know, kids are here, they're born, you follow them very closely with a pediatrician um, while they're young and then and then they go off somewhere and then they come back to school. But if if something that if something could be done in between to make sure that they're that they're doing well, then I think that Mm -hmm. finding ways to do that from a neuroscience perspective would be really interesting. Yeah, it's very, very important. Um, Teague, any closing thoughts that you want to share with us? Well, we're thinking about wrapping up here. Hmm. Oh, just you know, if you're if you're interested in in data science and brain science, I think you know UVA has a lot of expertise in that. So we're here, um, and yeah, I, I think that that brain science um, as a very data centric science is the way of the future. Generally speaking, both in terms of funding and how we need to to work with large-scale data. Uh, but I, I do want to uh, wrap back to the point that particularly when it comes to like clinical work, intervention work, that sort of thing, we have to be theoretically informed. Mm-hmm. I worry about the dangers of really like purely data-driven mm-hmm. intervention work or data-driven right. inference work where we are then developing treatments or developing interventions or developing that sort of thing. And I think that we, we have to have a good you know standard of care uh, that we take um, as we work through these problems. Certainly best practices. Best practices. Uh, how yeah. we uh, are going to comport ourselves with this Absolutely. stuff. And Absolutely. As, a, as a journal editor uh, of a scientific journal, uh, when I see articles come through where they've just applied some sort of pure 
machine learning mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. to do classifications. I'm I'm not very enthusiastic about those, yeah. and I yeah. will tend to not move those forward in the publication process because they're often telling me something more about the machine learning algorithm mm-hmm. that was applied mm-hmm. than about the brain that they were utilizing data from. Absolutely. And that to me is so one-sided. It didn't take me yeah. any closer to understanding the brain, but I knew a lot more about what you could apply <laughs> this machine learning algorithm to, but that isn't really helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I think we should, you know, at as a university, um, you know, think about our trainees and our students, even at the undergraduate level. Mm-hmm. Like, should every undergraduate at UVA take a course in data science? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yes, they should. And uh, th- in fact, we've got plenty of brain data for them to right. be unfamiliar <laughs> with uh, and and apply some of these methodologies. I think it's it's more than just data science, however, it's really they should learn a programming language Mm -hmm. um, or two. Mm -hmm. Um, They should become familiar with how to manage and maintain the literally thousands and thousands of files that you're having to manage. Um, Mm -hmm. Being able to understand it at that level is helpful because you understand how, if Mm -hmm. you understand how the study is conducted and you understand how the data is organized, uh, that gives you a lot of insight in how to analyze it. Um, And then you can apply these machine learning Mm -hmm. methodologies Mm -hmm. and other other technologies. Um, So yeah, I would completely (laughs) agree that we should start early as possible. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, I uh, want to thank you both for taking the time to uh, have a yeah. little conversation oh, today. You. So, you, um, again, uh, Tanya Evans from the School of uh, Education here at UVA, Teague Henry from the Department of Psychology and the School of Data Science, and myself, Jack Van Horn from uh, Psychology and Data Science. We're really glad to have had this uh, opportunity to chat with you both today. Absolutely. Yeah, thank so, you. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for checking out this week's episode. We'll be back with a new episode next month. If you're enjoying UVA Data Points, give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at uvadatapoints at virginia.edu. We'll see you next time.